Welcome to The Freedom Factor. I'm your host, Oliver Bardwell. Yesterday morning, something magical happened at the Iowa Machine Shed at a free pancake breakfast with presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. I was invited last week and reminded of it again yesterday at a bill signing at the governor's office, and then again later in the day by Representative Eddie Andrews, who asked me if I'd be attending. I decided that I could justify free coffee and pancakes right after an hour FXB workout at Farrell's on my break day. Right when I walked in to the event, Gloria asked me if I would give the opening prayer, and by the time I sat down, I missed the opportunity for pancakes and coffee. But the magical thing that happened was that I didn't even notice. Every person in that room was hanging on Vivek's every word. He really spoke to the heart of every matter that we're concerned about as Iowans, while building hope about the future for our country. My wife couldn't make it, and after Gloria's wonderful introduction, I realized that I needed to record his talk for her, and I'm glad I did. After listening to it again, I think it's powerful enough that everyone should hear it, so I decided to upload it to our podcast. It was an intimate event. The room that we were in only holds 100 people, and every seat was filled. The gentleman next to me drove three hours from Kansas City to be there to hear Vivek speak. You can hear the applause and the occasional clinking of plates and pouring of water or a child in the background, but that's really part of the beauty of it. His speech and vision for the country is so powerful. I think you should hear it. I will be hearing from Trump in the same room, and I'm looking forward to comparing the two. I originally uploaded the recording to share with my family and friends who couldn't make it, but you all know that I really consider us family and friends. So feel free to listen, share with your family and friends, and most importantly, be prepared to be inspired. So my book tour in Iowa began with sitting down and having coffee with Gloria. So my first Iowan friend who has become a good family friend since then This is the first place that we held an event on the campaign trail in Iowa, right here in this room. So we kicked this off a little over three months ago. Jonas, we we, we did that first event at the VFW as well, where we've come back a couple of times where you welcomed us back and have enjoyed becoming part of that community. Thank you for opening your arms to us. It's been a number of firsts that we're tying back up today. And I'll tell you, when we're having this, this point about having an open conversation, this strikes me this week particularly close to home. Because even though I'm a presidential candidate, the same thing that they can do to you, they're doing to me. LinkedIn. It's actually been using this platform for years. It's a good question as to why I'm why, why I was using it. But use it to communicate because it's a network of friends you've built over the years. You know, thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, whatever people we reach. They censored me and locked my account a little over a week ago. And I thought it was a technical glitch and we emailed them. And we said, oh, hey, we, we think there's a, because I got a bunch of text messages from old friends saying that, hey, I used to follow your stuff on LinkedIn. Are you, you know, are you off LinkedIn? I said, no, no, we're on. So we said there was a technical glitch. An employee writes back and says that you have violated our policies for spreading inaccurate or misleading information. 
and they gave three examples of where. So the first one was a video. So this isn't even stuff I posted. I posted a video of a prior speech, actually that I gave here in Iowa, where I included certain statements like Biden being played by China, pointing to some of the Biden-China relationships. Another where I made an argument that if the climate religion actually cared about the climate, they'd be paying attention to shifting oil production to places like Russia and China, and that it shows that it has nothing to do with the climate. And then the third thing I said is that fossil fuels are a requirement for human prosperity. Those are the three statements they identified in videos that I had posted and said that this violated their policies. So, so my team replied and asked them respectfully. I don't think they should be in the business of censoring opinions anyway, but I like to be factual in what I say. These are 10 minute videos each. There's a lot of facts supporting this. I said, what was inaccurate in any of those statements? Thank you. They came back and they said, actually, this violates our policies for, they doubled down, the same employee. Misinformation, hate speech, and violence is what came back in the response. So this point was pretty interesting, so I thought it would be interesting to share this with the public. So I did share it with the public. I posted it on my Twitter feed, which got some journalists starting to call LinkedIn. LinkedIn then replied, this is two days ago now, and said that, to the journalists, they didn't say to us, they said this was an error and his account has been restored. <laughs> it was an error. See, I thought it was an error the first time, but then after, after three email correspondences back and forth, they say it's an error. It's not an error. It's not some technical glitch. It's an actual intentional mistake, but this is how we win. Okay, is we show up and we engage. And I, I think that there's two schools of thought. And I respect the other one. I understand where they're coming from within our own party. One school of thought is we need to opt out. We have to disengage. Other candidates in this race have said, and I understand where they're coming from, that I won't sit across the table from NBC News. I won't show up at a liberal college campus unless the questions are pre-screened. And, and I get it where they're coming from. But my view is different. We're on the winning side of our pro-American revival. So we will show up, we will argue for our side, and we will win. That is how we lead this revival. So, so that's what we're going to do today. Okay, if you want to know how well we're doing as a country, it is not the number of ballots that get cast every November. That's just the final act at the end of the process. You want to know the best measure of America's civic health? It is the percentage of people who feel free to say what they actually think in public. Right now we're doing poorly. We can be doing better. The way we do better is to start talking openly again. Only way we do that, start getting that practice now. So I'm gonna kick this off, share with you some thoughts that include things you're probably not allowed supposedly to say on public or on LinkedIn, but now you are. <laughs> so we're gonna to wanna to kick that off in, in spirit. So. I'm going to start with a bit of a mystery story. Okay, think about this. We can be angry about what I'm about to tell you. We're not going to be angry about it. We're going to be curious about it. We want to get to the bottom of it. Okay, we see the rise of multiple different secular cults in the United States at the same time. So let's treat this as a mystery story a little bit. The first of these cults is a cult of racial wokeism. I wrote my first book about this one. This says your, your identity is based on your skin color. That if you're black, you're disadvantaged. That if you're white, you're privileged. 
No matter your economic background, your race governs who you are and what you can achieve. Don Lemon believed in this when he sat across the table from me at CNN and said I could disagree with him when I had black skin. It's what he, exactly what he said to me. But it's not just him. At least, he, at least I got him fired. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. <laughs> he's gone. But that's what I mean by show up and win. But, but he's not the only one. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of the squad, she said the same thing, basically. She says that we don't want any more black faces that don't want to be a black voice. We don't want any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice. I don't fit her description of what counts as a brown voice. But there's a toxic assumption embedded in there. The assumption is when your race goes from being about your skin color to being about the content of your ideas, then any disagreement with those ideas automatically makes you a racist. And there's no greater damnation in modern America than to be called a racist. So when given the choice between pledging allegiance to this new religion and being tarred with that scarlet R, everyday Americans are choosing to bend the knee. And that's what's created that new culture of fear in our country. Fear of losing your jobs, fear of your kids getting a bad grade in school, fear of becoming an outcast in your community. So that's the first of these cults anyway. We could talk about that one for hours, but that's not my point today. My point today is there's a coincidence in the country. Right around the same time you have that cult, there's a second cult. A cult of gender ideology. This one says that the sex of the person you're attracted to on the day you're born, and that you're attracted to, is hardwired on the day you're born. Okay? That's what the gay rights movement's whole premise was. It had to be to be a civil right, to say that it's hardwired on the day you're born. But that now also says that your own biological sex is totally fluid over the course of your life. Right? Those two things can't make sense at the same time if you're operating according to logic. But if you're operating according to a cult-like religious belief system, then these things can make sense. And then it makes the same move as the first religion about the voice. So when Peter Thiel, he's a man who's attracted to men, spoke at the Republican National Committee nominating Trump in 2016, after that, the leading LGBTQIA plus magazine in the country published an article saying that Peter Thiel is not gay because he does not represent the gay voice. So now you're seeing a pattern. And then right around the same time, you have this cult over here. You've got racial wokeism, transgenderism. Now you've got the new one, the climate cult. This one looks like it's here to stay unless we do something about it. We're going to do something about it. But this one says, oh, we're going to get that. We're, we're done with this one. Believe me, by the time I'm through, we're done with this one. But let's understand it. This is a cult that says we have to, at all cost, abandon carbon emissions here in the United States while completely turning a blind eye to those same carbon emissions being shifted to places like China. That doesn't make sense if it's about supposed global warming. But again, it's not about logic. It's a cult-like belief system. Then you would think the people who are opposed to carbon emissions here would embrace the best known form of carbon-free energy production known to mankind, which is nuclear energy. And yet they're the exact ones who are hostile to nuclear energy. Why? Because nuclear energy might be too good at solving their supposed made-up problem. 
which means that they might actually have to fess up to the fact that this isn't about the climate, it's about something else, global equity. But again, I could go on for that one about hours. We're not doing that today. My point today is, do you think it's a coincidence that we see the rise of these different cults at the same time? You think that's an accident? You think that's a coincidence? It is not. It is a symptom of a deeper void in our country. A deeper void for purpose and meaning. If you have a hole the size of God in your heart and God does not fill it, something else will instead. The same can be said for belief in a nation. That is what's going on. I'm telling you this. I'm here today speaking to you as the first millennial ever to run for U.S. president as a Republican. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm 37. I was born in 1985. And I will tell you as a member of my generation that we are all hungry for a cause. We are hungry for purpose and meaning and identity at a point in our national history when the things that used to fill that void faith patriotism hard work family these things have disappeared that leaves a moral vacuum in its wake a black hole and when you have a black hole that runs that deep that is when poison fills the void it almost doesn't matter what the poison is. Wokeism, transgenderism, climatism, COVIDism, globalism, I could go on. These are symptoms of a deeper void. The analogy I use, I spoke at, where, where did you hear at the Faith and Freedom? Yeah. You guys were? I appreciate that. I love I loved that event. I mean, it was a short time. Something about being in that room. Let me open up. I'll tell you what I shared with you. You heard me say it that day. There's an analogy that I used. It's from... Actually, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I don't know if you've ever read that book. I read it at St. X High School. Changed my life. The, the analogy I use is related to something he said in the book. Is We're all like a bunch of blind bats flying around in a cave trying to figure out where we are. Where bat figures out where it is, doesn't have eyes, can't see. Sends out sonar signals that bounce off the fixed walls of the cave. And then it comes back and says, this is where I am. We human beings, we do the same thing. We send out a signal. It bounces off something that is fixed. Something that is true. Say my family, the two parents who brought me into this world. The mother and the father. My wife with whom I brought two children into this world. That means something to me. That is real. That is true. I send out the signal. It bounces back. It tells me this is where I am. We send out a signal that bounces off of my faith in God. That is real. That is true. That means something to me. That bounces back and it tells me, this is where I am. Send out a signal that bounces off of my belief in this nation. That I am a citizen of the United States of America. Not some nebulous global citizen somewhere else. That I'm a citizen of this nation. That is true. That means something to me. That bounces back and tells me. This is where I am. I work hard. I create something in the world. I am proud of it. That is real. That is true. 
send out the signal that bounces back and tells me this is where I am. What happens when those things each disappear? We send out these signals and then nothing comes back. That's where we are today. We're lost in that abyss. When the Israelites escape from the Pharaoh, this book of Exodus stuff, they're lost in the desert. They cannot find the promised land. What do they then say? We want to go back and be ruled by the Pharaoh. See, so we can do what I've been doing for the last several years. Point out the woke industrial complex, our version of the Pharaoh today. And, I, and I'm not blaming any other conservatives than myself here. We can point out that problem, but we're not going the distance unless we look inside and ask ourselves, what is it that makes us want to bend the knee? You don't bend the knee to the real thing, you're going to bend the knee to something. You don't pledge allegiance to the flag, you're going to pledge allegiance to something. That's what's going on in our country. Now the left is masterful at filling that void. They'll give you a vision of identity. It's not the right one, but they'll give you a sense of identity. Race, gender, sexuality, climate. What do we do? So far, we criticize, myself included, criticize the hypocrisies of each of those things and say, no, 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 here's why that's wrong and here's why we're not that. Well, I'm just done running from something. We got to start running to something. That is what this campaign is actually about. What are we running to? The left will give us race, gender, sexuality, and climate. We're running to the individual, the family, nation, and God. Okay, the individual. There is only one you. There will only ever be one you. You're not riding some tectonic plate of group identity. You're endowed by your creator with free will to achieve what you want in the world because you are an agent. Free to decide your own destiny, not determined by your genetics. That is what it means to be an individual. We're not just against big government. We are. But we are also for the best known form of governance to mankind. That is the nuclear family, mother and father in the home. We stand for that. We will not apologize for it. That we stand for conviction in our nation that being a citizen, a capital C citizen, comes with civic duties. Even if you're a member of a next generation that's been taught to hate this country, we will teach you why we all ought to love it. And that, yes, we are indeed one nation under God without apology. That is what we are running to. Our vision. Not just negating somebody else's vision. So that's, that's what we're going to do with the conservative movement. That is our challenge ahead. That's what the next 18 months are all about. Do we have an actual vision of our own that dilutes the woke agenda to irrelevance? A vision of American national identity that runs so deep that the poison just melts away. We need more than no. That's what we need to answer. You ask people my age, what does it mean to be an American? You get a blank stare in response, like a deer in the headlights. What does it mean to be American? To me, it means you believe in the ideals that set this nation into motion 250 years ago. It means you believe in ideals like the pursuit of excellence and merit, that we get ahead in this country, not on the color of our skin, but on the content of our character and our contributions. 
That is why I'm ending race-based affirmative action in America. It has been a cancer on our national soul. What does it mean to be an American? It means we believe in concepts like the rule of law. That if you're like my parents, you do get to come to this country legally through the front door, follow the rule, pay your taxes. My parents, they raised two of us, my brother and I both, who went on to found companies that helped thousands of Americans, actually. They taught us that the good things in life do involve a sacrifice, entering a marriage, having children. Yes, these things involve a sacrifice, but that you can make a sacrifice if you know what you are sacrificing for. We should be open to immigrants like them. But that also means that we say no, without apology, to anyone whose first act of entering this country breaks the law, and that is why I would use the military to secure our own southern border, because that is what it means to be an American. Means we believe in a radical dream that our founding fathers had 250 years ago, a radical dream that I have as a citizen that the people who we elect to run the government ought to be the ones who actually run the government, not this managerial bureaucracy that runs the show today. That is what it means to have three branches of government, not four. I said, is, you know what, if I'm elected president, if you guys put me there and I can't collect a paycheck from you all as the taxpayer for more than eight years, which I think is a good thing, then neither will any of those federal bureaucrats reporting into me either replace civil service protections with eight-year term limits for the bureaucrats that we never elected. That is what it means to be an American. And by the way, many of those bureaucracies, they shouldn't have existed in the first place, all right? You want to take one like the U.S. Department of Education. Should have never existed. I'm not going to tell you that I'm going to reform it. That would be a lie. I want to learn from my predecessors in the role. I'm not going to just, like Trump, put Betsy DeVos on top and say, tinker around the edges and fix this thing. Because guess what? They're long gone, and the Department of Education still here spending more money than ever, foisting radical racial and gender ideologies onto our schools that we think are coming from our school boards. They're not. They're coming from the federal government using the money as a cudgel to foist these agendas onto our country. So I cannot promise you to reform that beast. I don't think any human being can. I think when you have a rot that runs that deep, when the Department of Education should have never existed, I pledge to do the one thing a U.S. president is constitutionally empowered to do. We will shut it down. That is what it means to run the executive branch of the government. And we're going to do it. And then we move on to the other agencies that have gone corrupt from the FBI to the IRS, to the ATF, to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, all the way on down. You cannot tame the beast. You have to drain the beast. That's what it actually means to have three branches of government. I believe the fourth is unconstitutional and will govern accordingly. We can do these things. You gotta take a look at most of what I just told you. These are not, they should not be partisan ideas. I don't think the dividing line in our country today is between Republicans and Democrats. Just a little over a week ago, I was on the south side of Chicago. Okay, not a lot of Republicans go there. Not a lot of Democrats go there. Not a lot of police go there, it turns out. I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. And, and you know what I told them about the southern border? 
They loved it more than you guys did. They wanted you because they wondered why are you using our military to protect somebody else's border in Ukraine. And the reason they care about it even more is that South Shore High School has been converted or is in the process of being converted into an encampment for illegal migrants on whom they're spending $7,000 per person per month. When people in that community are rightly wondering what the heck happened to me living the life that I'm living. By America First isn't just about half the country, it's about all Americans. It's what I told them too. So this isn't about Republicans and Democrats. This is about whether we are pro-American. Are we willing to stand for the ideals of this country? To fight for them without apologizing for them? Or are you fundamentally anti-American? Do you wish to apologize for the existence of a nation founded on those ideals? Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, they don't represent a Democrat party. They represent an anti-American perspective in this country. Let's see that for what it is. But then we view it that way. It's easily, I can tell you from traveling the south side of Chicago, I'm going to Kensington, part of Philadelphia that the cops don't visit either. South Bronx after that. I can tell you from traveling this country, it's not 50-50. It's easily 80-20 in our favor, and half the 20 are people younger than me that never learned what those ideals were in the first place. That's why I think we have a chance to win 2024 in a landslide election like Reagan did in 1980. And I'll tell you the truth. Thank you. I think we're going to do it. I think we're actually going to do it. I'll tell you the truth, too, is if Ronald Reagan were alive today and he were in this race, I would not be. I would have no reason to be. Okay? I think he could, he could deliver that landslide election because understanding the distinction of what it means to be an American and overcoming the anti-American movement, he nailed that. Got us out of the identity crisis in the 70s. I'd hand it back to him to do it again in 2024. Easily. But he's not. And I think that what we need to do is to revive that spirit, bring it into the year 2023. That's my responsibility to reach that next generation that never learned those ideals in the first place. I'll tell you a sad fact. Less than 16% of Gen Z today says they are proud to be American. 25% recruitment deficit in the U.S. military just last year. It's a survey that came out two weeks ago, big national survey. Found over 60% of young Americans would rather give up their right to vote than to give up their access to TikTok. Oh I'm not kidding. It should be funny if it weren't true. We'll make a deal. We'll make a deal. <laughs> we have a deal for you. I mean, that's the, so, so, so I do have a deal, actually. And I proposed it here in... Where was we? we were in Dallas County a few weeks ago, actually. I unveiled my support for a constitutional amendment. We're not going to solve this by sitting around and complaining about it. We're going to have to think big. Outside of partisan boxes, we're going to have to think on the time scales of history. Actually, turns out the voting age only went down to, 19, to 18 in the year 1971 in the context of the military draft. People forget that. What I said is that I'm going to support a constitutional amendment that raises the voting age in this country from 18 to 25, but still allows you to vote at age 18. You still get to vote. As long as you either serve the country for six months, either in the military, police, or first responder role, or else pass the same civics test required of every immigrant to become a citizen of this country. Know something about the country. Right. One of the questions they ask on there is, what branch of the government does the U.S. president lead? Well, tell me 
if there's something objectionable about a citizen knowing that they're voting for the leader of the executive branch when they're actually voting for the leader of the executive branch. We make immigrants do it all the time. 10 years as a tax-paying citizen, whatever it is, before saying you get to vote, you gotta know something about the country. Well, I think if you're 18 years old and you, you either wanna know something about the country or serve the country, that's how we revive civic duty, actually. You don't value something you inherit. You value something you have a stake in building, a duty to actually know about. This is the way we're gonna to have to start thinking if we're reviving our missing American identity. And if we find it, then we're gonna be able to stand up to the actual threats we face on the global stage. Top of the list is communist China. I think this is our moment. I'm confident we can do it. I've been an exchange student in China for two years. I've done business in China with my first company. When I started Strive, we committed never to from what I learned. But I understand this problem deeply. This is our moment to actually declare independence from communist China. We can actually do it. They're in a weaker spot than we are. This is our moment to declare independence. That's the Declaration of Independence of the 21st century. We can do these things. We can tell them. I mean, some of this stuff is easy. We will abandon the climate cult that shackles the U.S. while leaving China untouched. We will demand financial recompense for unleashing hell on the world with the COVID-19 pandemic using every lever we have available. This is the easy stuff. But we've got to be willing to go the distance and do the hard things. Tell China that if you're an affiliate of the CCP, you will not buy land in this country. You will not donate to a university in this country. That if you're a U.S. business, you will not expand into the Chinese market unless and until the CCP falls or radically reforms itself. That will involve some short-run sacrifice. I'll be very honest with you about that. But we've got to think on the timescales of history instead of quarterly earnings reports. We've got to have a little bit more Churchill, a little less Chamberlain in our foreign policy. We gotta have the fortitude to actually stand up. And by the way, secret foreign policy is in business, is that it's when you're most willing to make a sacrifice that you won't actually have to make one at all. I think the CCP will actually fold if we stand up with the spine. But we have to at least be willing to make that short-term sacrifice of some inconvenience to get there. But it's like my parents taught me. We can make that sacrifice if we know what we are sacrificing for. That is this thing we call America. I grew up into a generation, last 10, 20, 30 years, that taught us to celebrate our diversity and our differences so much that we forgot all of the ways we are really just the same as Americans, bound by a common set of ideals that brought together a headstrong, divided, and yes, diverse group of people 250 years ago. I believe it deep in my bones that those ideals still exist, but we are going to have to do the hard work of rediscovering them. I think our diversity, it can be a beautiful thing. But it's meaningless 
if there's nothing greater that unites us across that diversity. Without that, think about it with me for a second. We're really just a different looking group of two-legged higher mammals with a bunch of different shades of melanin walking some geographic space we call a country doing what our iPhones told us to do on a given day. That's not America. There's more to life than the meaningless passage of time. We are here for a purpose. America is a vision of what that place can be. E pluribus unum, we say. From many, one. That is the dream that won the American Revolution. That is the dream that reunited us after the Civil War. That is the dream that won us two world wars and the Cold War. That is the dream that still gives hope to the free world. And if we can revive that dream over group identity and grievance and victimhood, then nobody in the world, not a nation, not a corporation, not a virus is going to defeat us. That is what American exceptionalism is all about. And I promise you, with your help, we together will revive this great nation. Thank you all. God bless you. God bless your families. God bless our United States of America. this up and, and have a conversation this morning. I uh, went a little long there. <laughs> speaking yeah, speaking for my heart, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah uh, thank you. Question here, here, and here. Thank you. When you talk about um, sending the military to the border, yes. what are they going to do? How are we going to yeah. keep them out? So, literally, I have two steps to this. One is that I'm not just, I'm not worried about the human trafficking, the human crossing, the illegal crossing, also the fentanyl crisis that starts at the southern border. So literally, physically, it is difficult to actually build a wall to the entirety of it, and that's part of the reason why it hasn't happened. I'm all for building the wall, but it is insufficient. We literally station the military on our side of the border, including our side of the Rio Grande, spaced out at a distance where you see somebody illegally crossing, because most places are not places where you're actually allowed to cross. It is that simple. So instead of stationing the military on waiting or on reserve somewhere where they're really not at particularly advancing an American interest. We have 40,000 people sitting in Germany right now. Yeah. Came as a surprise to me when I learned that. Germany loves it because it makes them feel more secure. They have to do less to actually support Ukraine. But you look around the world, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in the military. We'd actually, we, if we could station them all across the southern border and all across the northern border, we still would have excess people serving in our military today relative to where they're stationed now. So that's actually as simple as, as stationing them at the southern border, on the border. Now there's this legal doctrine that says, and I think it's a good one, posse comitatus, which says that you cannot use the military to carry out a law enforcement function here at home. So I'm very precise when I say at the border, I really mean at the border, because that's still facing a foreign policy threat and respects the law as it exists. And the other thing I would say is I'm prepared, if necessary, to use our own military to annihilate the Mexican drug cartels south of our own border, solve the supply side fentanyl crisis that's killing 50 times the number of people who died on 9-11 each year. Quick follow-up. 
are you willing to shoot people even if with rubber bullets or what? I mean, what, how are they going to keep them out? I'm not willing. I don't think they're going to have to use fatal force to do it. But solutions like the ones that you described, I think are, I mean, tactically on the list, right? It's deterrence. Why do you think that it is the fact that we now have 14,000 migrants a day? Why do you think it went up under President Biden? Because people are human beings. They understand and respond to the incentive that they know when we purposefully turned a blind eye, that was their cue to come in. If we stationed our military on the border, nobody's coming. You got somebody in camo with a gun facing and standing off every 250 feet on a border. Nobody's crossing that border. And, and I want to be really honest about this because I, I think we've got we've to reach into our what Lincoln would have called the, the better inner angels of our spirit, okay? Put ourselves in the shoes of one of those migrants. Speak myself. If I was in their shoes and I see a country that's given me a wink and a nod to come across, I'd probably be doing the same thing as them if I was in a tough position with trying to make a better life for my family. It's not even their fault. It's the fault of an administration that has abandoned the rule of law. So by saying that we stand for the rule of law, I think we solve the problem right there. And just physically the wall's insufficient to do it. We have excess reserve in our military to be able to take this problem. We've done the math on it. We have more than enough, and we have a northern border problem too. I don't know if people are paying attention to this. But I think we can address the southern border and the northern border problem by using our own military not to protect somebody else's border halfway around the world, but to first protect our own border here in America instead. And I think that's how we solve the border crisis and the fentanyl crisis in one fell swoop. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, then, um, on that subject, many people don't understand that the law says crossing the border presently, the law says it should be a felony, but it is a misdemeanor. If they come back a second time, it is a felony, and it's not being a you know, uh, enforced. Enforced. Yep. So, so this is, again, I, I look at things as, I get to root causes. So this is a problem, but what is it a symptom of? It is a symptom of the deeper abandonment of the rule of law in America. So, so I'll just give you three things from the last two weeks. We go to last year, hundreds of examples. I'll give you three things in the last two weeks. They might seem disconnected. One is you've got Title 42 expiring, 14,000 migrants per day illegally crossing the southern border. Think about the math on that per day. On the other hand, you've got, say, I mean, I could pick a bunch of examples. I'm even thinking about which one to choose. What happened to Jonathan Neely and Sergeant Daniel Penny? And by the way, I'm personally donating to his legal defense because I don't think that he should be prosecuted. Think about what's happening there in New York. And then you look at what's happened with the Durham report and the release from the FBI that didn't follow the law. These are three very different things. So I'm a crazy man talking about three different things. No. These are deeply related because when the top law enforcement bureau in the United States is unwilling to follow the law, then why would you expect a migrant who's repeatedly trying to cross the southern border to follow that same law either? That's what's going on. The cancer is we've abandoned the rule of law in our country. When the top law enforcement itself abandons it, how can we expect anyone else to? So that's why I think this starts at the top. So I think it's the answer to the last question. If we're willing to stand behind what we actually say, practice what we actually preach, signal that we mean it by putting the fully armed military on our southern border, we send a signal that we do stand for the rule of law in this country. We shut down the FBI, a corrupt institution that has shown itself to be incapable of actually following the law, 
but it's not nearly as radical as it sounds. At the local level, we have local prosecutors and local police. At the federal level, you've got federal marshals, and then you've got the DOJ. The DOJ has its own problems, but there's no intermediary institution required to sit in between. So when you have an agency that shouldn't have existed, and most of the FBI's drug investigations are totally independent of the DEA, it's not even efficient. The whole purpose of having a bureaucracy then becomes to become a lab for festering corruption. And so if we're running the executive branch, I think the problem starts at the top. I don't blame the migrants again. I blame the person who's in charge at the top. And not even the person, because right now that person is just a hollowed out husk of a puppet for the managerial industrial complex around them. It's not a joke. It's really what's going on in the country. But that's where it starts at the top. And so if we really are willing to say we stand for the rule of law, that has what my hero Ronald Reagan would call in a different context, a trickle-down effect, to the rest of our culture. And so if we stand up and say we mean it, I don't think our problem with the border is the tactics. I think it's actually a symptom of the deeper philosophy that we've abandoned. Bring that philosophical commitment to the rule of law back. We're going to be in good shape as a country. You mentioned earlier that we need more of Churchill and less of Chamberlain. Would you uh, expound on that, please? Yeah. So that's a long way of saying that when we are strong in our conviction at home, we can actually project that strength through conviction in our foreign policy. Okay, part of the reason, I'll give, I'll give you the clearest example of that right now. If that had been a Russian spy balloon flying over half the continental United States, we would have shot it down in an instant and ratcheted up the sanctions. But because it was a Chinese spy balloon, we didn't. You want to know why? Because we know we depend on them. So Xi Jinping, I, I, would, I, would, I told you I have some familiarity with the Chinese perspective. I think it's important to understand how the other side sees us. Here's how, put yourself in the shoes of Xi, Xi Jinping. Here's what he sees. You guys are so addicted to me that you cannot wean yourself off even if you wanted to. You're addicted to the fentanyl that I'm pumping across your southern border, killing you in my version of a modern opium war to get you guys back for a centuries-long vengeance that I have with the West from centuries ago. And you can't do anything about it because you're addicted to me. You're addicted to the digital fentanyl infecting your phones through the form of TikTok or whatever else. You will not be able to wean your kids off of it because your kids are addicted to me. You're addicted to the financial fentanyl. We provide the national debt that fuels your spending, giving you the hoe that's now digging your own grave. You're addicted. You can't do a darn thing about it because you guys think you're capitalists, but the way they view capitalists is a bunch of animals. We're not human beings. We're animals that jump in response to whatever latest signal we're given. Give the dog a cookie, the dog's going to jump. That's the way he views us. Xi Jinping views Tim Cook, Larry Fink. They're like his lap dogs, his circus monkeys. He says jump, they'll say how high. Because they can use the carrot of entering the Chinese market to get Apple or BlackRock or anybody else to do what they want to do. That's what he sees in us. And so the question is, actually, it's about the question of, you talk, complain about the Pharaoh or look inside and take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask ourselves what we need to do to strengthen ourselves. It's not about him, it's about us. Do we have it in us? To actually stand up and say, no, this is who we are. We will think on the timescales of history rather than election cycles. And that we will do the right thing for the next generation, even if that involves taking some small risk of some inconvenience today. That risk isn't nearly as big as we make it out to be. 
When I say declare independence from China, I actually mean it. It's not some slogan. I'm not going to give you a false promise that all of this is going to come back to the United States instantly by snapping a finger. That is not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. But if we're willing to use Japan, South Korea, Thai, uh, India, Philippines, Taiwan too, but Taiwan's risky because they might invade. Vietnam, absolutely. Australia, Brazil, Mexico, you go around the world. We've actually done the math on this. The supply chain issue becomes that much easier. And so we got to line that up before we show up to Xi Jinping. And then when I do show up, I'm sitting across the table from him. He will know that I mean it. And I predict he will fold. No more IP theft, data theft. No more turning companies and universities into their lobbying pawns. But if not, we're out. That's what it means, is a willingness to make some short-term sacrifice for the actual long run. It's when you're most willing to do it that you won't have to at all. But the thing that we're missing, it isn't about our foreign policy. And that's why I start with the identity crisis in our country. To me, it's all about reviving national identity and civic pride. It's not because I don't care about the economy or foreign policy. Actually, we, I think we're leading the way in defining economic and foreign policy specifics. But if you're just hitting the specifics without understanding the root cause, you're just going through the motions. We can actually deliver on it if we first revive our self-confidence here at home. And that's where I'm most focused. Reagan, when he left office in 1989, all the things he could have said. The one thing he said, his parting speech, January of 1989, was the thing he was most proud of, was reviving a national character that was missing on the day he took office on January 20th, 1980. All the things you could have been, think about that. Cold War, economic revival, fighting and overcoming inflation, none of that. It was reviving a national character and a national pride in the next generation. That's what he said. Like I said, if he, if he were alive, to, alive and well today, and in this race, I think he'd win it by a landslide, both in the primary and the general. But he's not. That's what actually called me into this race, hopefully to do that for the next generation. And that's what I mean when I say it. So thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, so I just have one question, and that's about the World Economic Forum. They've come out and they've said that by the year 2030, you will live in the pods, you will eat the bugs, you will own nothing, you will be happy. America will not be the next great superpower. Uh, things kind of like that. They've said uh, that they will systematically strip away everything that has made it America exceptional, and nobody seems to be willing to talk about them because they run pretty much everything. They are the global cabal that runs the world from the shadows, but it's not the shadows, it's in Davos. So will you disavow kind of their policy, what they've said they will do for America, and will you disavow Klaus Schwab? more than disavow. I think we need to take them down. This is the this is 1776 question. We settled this. We thought we settled this in 1776. This is about the old world and the new world. Right? 1776, we said that we the people sort out our differences through free speech and open debate in the public square where every person's voice and vote counts equally. The old world view is no, no, no. We can't trust the people to do this. We have to feed them bugs. We're gonna decide it in the back of palace halls between business leaders and labor leaders what's right for the rest of society at large. That was the old world view. Old money. We settled that in 1776, or we thought we did. That old monster is now rearing its head again. Their tactics are devious. They're doing it through, this is the vision of the Great Reset, dissolving the boundaries between the public sector and the private sector. So governments work with companies towards the global common good. Dissolving the boundaries between nations to work towards the global common good. That's what the Great Reset is all about. What I think we are leading here is the response to the Great Reset is what I call the Great Uprising. That is what says no 
to that vision that we the people as citizens sort out how or whether we will fight climate change or racial injustice or anything else. We the people decide that. That's the way we do it in America. Their tactics are so devious that shows up in the ESG movement. That uses probably, I'm sorry to say it, it's just a fact, money of probably most people in this room to vote for policies in corporate America's boardrooms that you didn't know you were voting for and have nothing to do with your financial interests. They're also particularly devious. They gave me, this is staggering, two years ago, now Gloria laid out, you know, I've had success and whatever. They gave me, they offered to give me an award, a Young Global Leader Award, Elon Musk and others, and Peter Thiel have won this, this award. I said, hell no. I refuse to accept your award because guess what? They've already noticed that I've started to criticize them. So this is about bringing you into the fold. Wake up a few days, a few weeks later, nonetheless, I'm named on their website, having received their award. So I'm now in litigation. I'll sue them. I'll sue them. Absolutely. We're taking them down because we will not stand out. We, that's, what we, that's what we need to do. We, can, we have to stop just complaining and retreating into our hole. We have to take the fight to whoever stands in our way. A freight train will ride in broken rails, but you're coming at full speed. That's the best we can do. I'm a train car on that rail. We will run through anything that stands in our way. That is how we ultimately win. And Klaus Schwab doesn't know what's coming from. That's the way I view it. So thank you very much, man. You spoke about the 80-20 and the conservatives and that we could win in the landslide. I believe that's true. I believe that happened actually in 2020, but there's still somebody else in the White House right now. So it's not going to happen without, you know, if there's cheating. Um, you can't, you know, what, what's being done to make that difference? So I'll be very honest with you. We all have a role to play. I mean, I view what LinkedIn did as the beginning of election interference. Think about it, right? It's already begun. Think about one of the things that you could just look at that skewed the result of the last election was there's polling data to back this up, but the Hunter Biden laptop story had not been suppressed. That affected the views of many independent-minded voters across this country, and rightly so. Because who would want a president who's captured by our enemies? Paid, literally paid, personally, by our enemies. Well, they suppressed that systematically. You couldn't even send it in a direct message, the equivalent of email. Totally silent. So, so, so my, the way I view that's already begun. However... You know, I think this gets into the, the tactics of it. I don't think it was 80-20 in the last election. And, and, so, and so my view is, I've got a role to play. I kind of use the same analogy I used in response to the last question in a different context. We're riding broken rails. I'm a train car on the rails. Riding the rails we have. So the best we're going to do is win as Reagan did in 1980. And I think we can do it. Win in a landslide election. And a landslide minus some shenanigans is still a landslide. And then we go back and we lay the rails. So the truth is there's nothing I can do between now and January 2025 on that issue. We're trying to make a big difference on the rest of it. I mean, I'm doing what I can, taking on the ESG movement through the private sector, starting companies. We all have a role to play. I think there is something that each of us can do. We don't have to wait for November. You're voting every day with your dollars, whether or not you know it. You're voting every day with the message you send to these teachers and the school boards of where your kids go to school. We gotta fall out of this trap of thinking that it's just every November that we somehow show up and make a difference. It's not. So there's a role to play. There's people working on this issue across the country. Anybody, somebody calls you, I'm sad to say this, a voter ID law is somehow being racist. The state of affairs we live in now is if they're calling you racist, it means you're right over the target. You're doing it right. And that's a sad state of affairs for where we are right now. But my job, we all have a role to play. 
My job in this is if you put me in that seat, being our Republican nominee, my job is to deliver a landslide election to win by such a margin that we still end up in the White House, and more importantly, that we govern with a moral mandate to actually see through what the U.S. president can deliver. I want to tell you something about everything I've told you so far, too. You're going to notice a thread here. I haven't told you about a legislative agenda. I have a legislative agenda, but everything I've told you about so far, using the military to secure the southern border, shutting down government agencies that should not exist, ending affirmative action. Lyndon Johnson created it by executive order. You can end it by executive order. I'm being very intentional about what I'm telling you. These are the things that I can do without asking anybody for permission or for forgiveness. And I believe in learning from my predecessors. What Trump promised to do in rooms like this in 2015 and 2016, the first thing, and people even forget this, was to repeal and replace Obamacare. Well, guess what? Obamacare is now codified. It's in the DNA. It's the law of the land. Why? Because presidents make the mistake of thinking that what they're supposed to do is legislate. No, that's Congress's job. The job of the U.S. president is to lead the executive branch of the government as an actual leader. And so I have a very clear-eyed view of how we're going to do this. The president's not going to fix everything. Got to get rid of the political messiah wish. Nobody's coming from on high, from the White House on high, including me. Not going to promise that to you. No one's coming from on high to save us from the White House. If we're going to be saved, it is going to be because we save ourselves. All right, I'm not letting you guys elect me. I'm not letting you off the hook. We're going to have to keep doing our part, but I'm doing mine. And so I'm not going to be in a position to fix that between now and January 2025. But I think I am in a position to deliver a landslide election that gives us that moral majority. That's why I'm in this race. You do your part. I promise you I'll do mine. Thank you. Hi. Um, so I met my wife when I was a Marine security guard in Ljubljana, Slovenia at the embassy there. Brought her home. Have three wonderful children with her. Great friend of mine, York, owns Hickman Auto. Uh, won the won the lottery to cut to migrate from Germany, and they're great people. There's already been seven million illegal immigrants just under Biden. What are we going to do about them so that we can keep the great people who need a voice? Because the seven million illegal immigrants, while they may not be able to vote currently, they're rearranging representatives, they're rearranging electoral votes through the census. How are we going to deal with that? Thank you. First of all, thank you for your service. And I also appreciate going to, you probably understand Ljubljana. You know, there's a lot of good, uh, a lot of history there. You've been to that top of that hill, the beautiful area over, so overlooking the city. We really went to, you know, it's a lot of history that actually we, we forget in this country that America was born out of a broader tradition. I appreciate people like you who go serve and actually that's a great thing. You married someone who was also had a culture of service the kinds of immigrants we should want in this country. And that goes to the heart of your question of, we don't have, in some sense, we don't have space in the immigration system. It's already clogged up by the millions who literally break the law to cut to the front of the line. And ironically, they're not the ones that we want here either, because if we want a culture of the rule of law, you don't want the first people who come in to be the one whose first act breaks the law. So you get to a hard question, what are we gonna do? Look, as I said, I don't blame so much the people who came rather than the administration that created the conditions for them making a decision that most human beings would have made in their shoes. But if we're going to restore that culture of the rule of law, amnesty is not an option. 
we have to actually send them back. And then for the best of them, who actually are able to make contributions and have demonstrated themselves to be law-abiding and willing to make civic commitments to this country, there can be a longer-run path to coming in through the front door, which is itself a broken system as well. That's my answer. Amnesty is not an option. Full stop. We have to be willing to respectfully, humanely send them back and follow the actual rules because that's what it means to believe in the rule of law. Thank you. Last couple questions and we'll wrap. We're we staying up all night reading your woke book. It's so wonderful. Oh, thank you. And my thank husband you. has a question. Thank you. Yeah, everyone. Okay. Yeah, anyone who gets the chance. You should read that book. It's a great, it's a great personal story. I wanted to ask you, it seems to me what we need as a candidate is someone who is sufficiently determined to get through the kind of conservative proposal you suggest, and it also can build some sort of consensus that draws in a lot of independence. Yeah. Now, what bothers me is there is overreach, I believe, some people are gonna disagree with this. I believe there's overreach in the state of Florida. I love the Hillsdale curriculum. It's good that they patterned the Florida curriculum after that. But when they say in there it's against the law to use any materials from the 1619 project, I as a teacher might want to use those to refute them for goodness sake. What are they thinking? So thank you for bringing this. We need to elevate actual debate in our party. Right? We obsess over the question of the who without asking the what and the why. What do we stand for and why do we stand for it? And I know the other candidates in this race well. I know Governor DeSantis well. I respect a lot of what he did in Florida, particularly relating to the COVID policies. But he and I have had a lot of healthy debate as well. And I think that my goal, I'm not going to attack other people in this field, but I am going to unapologetically draw policy contrasts because that's what makes us better as a party and a movement. I agree with the first part of what you said. I think the way we get to national unity is not, though, through compromise. It is by being uncompromising about our principles about the pro-American principles that unite us, that's how we actually get to national unity. So I think we have to keep those principles in the North Star. So I reject, and, and DeSantis isn't one of these, there's other conservatives who will say that you know, we need to compromise, hold hands, sing kumbaya. No, that doesn't work. National unity is delivered through sticking to our principles. But it also cannot be delivered by embracing the other side's principles in the clothing of our own. And that's what your question gets to the heart of. So I believe in conducting myself in this campaign. I mean, it's a, it's a contrast, and I, and I, it's not a criticism, it's just a direct contrast. There's two choices. I mean, Ron DeSantis says he won't talk to NBC News because they're not nice to him, and they're not nice to him. They're not nice to me, and they're not nice to any of us. But I believe that that's the uneven playing field we're on. We gotta show up and play and win. It's a different philosophy. I believe the answer to bad speech is not less speech, it is more speech. That's the answer. So we don't censor the other side, just make sure you don't censor me back in return. That's the way we've got to be playing. They still will. They still will, but, 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 but not by the time we're done with them. Right, right. I, I, think, I, think that, I think that most people in this country share those basic principles in common. They might disagree on corporate tax rates. We can debate that another day. But the basic rules of the road, most of us share it in common. Now, here's where I think I'm uniquely positioned to do this. I think it will take an outsider to actually get that job done. Because there are constraints in the current system that stop an existing politician from doing it. I'm going to lift the curtain for you guys a little bit. Be, I mean, you guys are always, Iowans are always really real with me. I'm going to be really real with you. The process of running for president usually entails, here's how it goes. You ask a bunch of the large donors of the Republican Party, they have an expectation that you do it. That you consult them for their advice. 
that you take a hat in hand. If you say the things that you're supposed to say, treat them with the deference you're supposed to have, they'll pitch in, that gives you the money that you need to run. And there are expectations that come with that. I did not play that game. I refused. I did it with Tucker Carlson, asked him for his advice, not for his permission, but because I actually value his, because I value his perspective. He's probably the only person of any serious import that I talked to. My wife and I made a decision that we declared we're in this race. And we put in over $10 million of our own hard-earned money into this campaign, and we will stop at nothing. And then we got about 40,000 small-dollar donors in the first 10 weeks that lifted this thing up. It's a different model. Trump did that in 2015. I respect that about him, too. But here's the thing. With, with being, a, being a politician, one of the things with the Disney issue in Florida, the real plot is that some of the special privileges that Disney enjoys, this frustrates me, kind of makes me sad because it puts our side on worse footing, were legislated into law, I think accidentally mostly, I don't think he meant to do it, by Ron DeSantis himself, because at the 11th hour, one of the anti-woke pieces of legislation was a political anti-discrimination statute. I actually am in favor of it, which says that if you're a tech company, you can't, if you operate a website, you can't discriminate based on political viewpoints, just like you can't discriminate based on race or other attributes. It's a good law. I actually applauded him for it. He's Red Woking, he likes the book. I've talked him through some of this stuff. But then at the 11th hour, it's literally at the 11th hour, the day before it passes, the legislative director lobbied by Disney includes an exemption in that, in the fine print, that says that this law does not apply if you operate a theme park of more than 25 acres in the state of Florida. So that applies to the streaming services and the websites. So think about the irony, the anti-woke law that at the 11th hour, because of lobbying, exempted Disney, really, literally, it's like karma. Disney then comes back and says, hey, we're gonna roam willy-nilly free and engage in viewpoint discrimination. And so that puts us on worse footing if we're not actually following our principles. The Silicon Valley Bank bailout, I, I don't wanna bore you guys, but I'll, I'll be brief on this unless you guys want to hear more about it, but I'm dead set against using the government to bail out a bunch of Silicon Valley tech startups. Okay, this is a technical issue. We don't talk about that much. Why did they get bailed out? It makes no sense. Now, one of the leading proponents of that bailout was a guy who's been publicly at war with me on this. I've lost most donors from Silicon Valley on the back of my position on this. Guy by the name of David Sachs, he's a venture capitalist. He was the number one proponent because all of his portfolio companies had money parked, way too much money parked, at one bank at Silicon Valley Bank. That was wrong. Well, turns out that he was one of the biggest donors to Ron DeSantis just a few months before. And Ron DeSantis, I respect him for being vocal on a lot of things. He bucked the trend on COVID, hasn't said a thing about the Silicon Valley Bank bailout. And David Sachs is the one that hosted the Twitter spaces that launched the campaign. So it's not his fault. It's really, I respect him and a lot of what he's done, but I think the debates we need to have in our party is include how much are we willing to declare independence, not just from China, but from our own donor class to stand up for what's right for the people. And it's, it's a shame the system is as broken as it is that politicians, they wouldn't be able to fund their campaign if they didn't do it that way. And so it shouldn't be that guys like Trump and myself who have lived the American dream, in my case, I didn't start with the money either, but who have actually created wealth are the people who are in the position to be independent. But the reality is if you want somebody who's independent of those forces, willing to stand on the side of principle, that's how we actually unite the country in the end, is stand unapologetically for the principles. We will unite this country. And that is why I'm in this race. Thank you. We'll take one last question, right. and then we'll wrap it up. Thank you.
We'll stay for some pictures and stuff afterwards too. Yeah, um, what is your plan to um, protect Social Security for future generations? Great. So there's this debate right now in the country on how we handle national debt. Again, this is one of those things where debate is good. It's okay if we disagree, even in our Republican Party, let's smoke it out. That's not attacking anybody, it's, not, it's making us better, okay? I'm glad other candidates are in the race. I'm glad DeSantis, I'm glad Tim Scott. This is good. This is an opportunity for us to define what we stand for. So Democrats will say that we need to raise taxes to cover the national debt. Big problem is that shrinks your tax base. It's a melting ice cube problem. Some Republicans come down on the side of saying we have to then make cuts the bifocal spectacle model of dealing with this is cutting cost. I think there is a better third way. It is obvious. It is hiding in plain sight if we're willing to open our eyes and see it. GDP growth in this country. We can grow our way out of our problems. We are this year growing on track to grow less than 1% GDP growth. We have grown over 4% per year for most of our national history. How do you do it? First thing, unlock American energy, the top input into the economy. Drill, frack, burn coal, embrace nuclear energy. Element number two, put people back to work by stopping paying them to stay at home. That's the number one obstacle in the economy to GDP growth. Number three, reform the Federal Reserve. Stop playing financial god. Go back to stabilizing the US dollar as a unit of measurement. Pretty simple stuff. The number of minutes in an hour fluctuated, none of us would be here at the same time. We'd walk around in the parking lot aimlessly. Well, same thing, the number of dollars in a unit of commodities varies as much as it does. You don't actually have the most efficient investments that attract the capital. That too is an obstacle to GDP growth. Now you tie, tie into that, Pairing back the administrative state, get back the fourth branch of government, you also have some positive economic benefits that come from that. We're at four to five plus percent GDP growth from those steps alone. And you know what? We only have to get to three percent for all of our other fiscal problems to melt away. And that that question sort of ties to where I'll wrap this up. Right? Because the debates we're having in this country, even between Democrats and Republicans, it's almost as though we concede that we're a nation in decline. And all we can argue about is how we split up the shrinking pie. Higher taxes or cutting Social Security and Medicare. It concedes. I mean, that's the basic assumption that both parties have made. I reject that. After Woking, I wrote my next book, Nation of Victims. I have to admit to you, I was in a, I was in a dark place when I wrote that book. I, I had my doubts about the country. Most of the book actually was an analysis of whether we're like the end of the Roman Empire. And there are some startling similarities. Inflation, devaluing the currency, bread and circuses, what do you think identity politics is? And halfway through the book, I took a darker turn where I said, well, Rome lasted 2,000 years if you count the Eastern Empire too. We might be more like Carthage, which only lasted a couple hundred. But I think the path to conviction, it runs through doubt. I have been through my version of doubt. I'm now at my place of conviction. I think we're a nation in doubt. We're on our path to conviction. And I'll tell you this personally. I believe this to be true. We don't have to be Rome. We don't have to be Carthage. 
We don't have to be a nation in decline. I think at our heart, we're really just a little young. Going through our own version of adolescence. That's right. Figuring out who we're going to be when we grow up. Right? When you go through adolescence, you go through this identity crisis. Then it makes sense. Talked at the beginning about our national identity crisis. That makes sense. You go through an identity crisis when you're going through adolescence. You go through self-doubt. You lose your self-confidence. That's where we are. But when you view it that way, you know, it's not acne. It's just it's not wrinkles. It's just acne. You know, kind of the, it, view it that way, it just becomes obvious. We're not a nation. We don't have to be a nation in decline. We might be on our ascent. The early stages of our ascent. We might not even be at base camp still climbing to that shining city on a hill that Reagan talked about 40 years ago. We're 40 years forward towards getting there. We're still not even all the way there. We're not even close to getting there. We're on our climb. And I think when you view it that way, it just becomes clear that we still can build a country where we can tell our kids in good conscience that America is still the nation where no matter who you are or where your parents came from or what your skin color is, that you can achieve anything you ever want in this country with your own hard work, your own commitment, and your own dedication, and that you know what? You are free to speak your mind at every step of the way that is the new American dream. That is what it means to be an American. That is what we are running to. And together, if you all do your part, I promise you, I will do mine to make sure that we get there. Thank you all. God bless you. God bless your families. God bless our United States. Thank you. Thank you.